0: from the princeton university school of engineering and applied science this is cookies a podcast about technology privacy and security i'm aaron nathans on this podcast we'll discuss how technology has transformed our lives from the way we connect with each other to the way we shop work and consume entertainment And we'll discuss some of the hidden trade-offs we make as we take advantage of these new tools. Cookies, as you know, can be a tasty snack, but they can also be something that takes your data. On today's episode, we'll talk with Mihir Scheerseger. He's a clinical lead at the Center for Information Technology Policy at Princeton, and a lecturer in computer science. He is a co-author of a recent paper that spells out in startling detail everything you've wondered about but didn't want to know about how online platforms are allowing students to have their personal data exploited as the students use them for online learning. Mihir has served at the New York Attorney General's Bureau of Internet and Technology as the lead trial counsel on matters of consumer protection law and technology. Let's get started. Mihir, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you, Aaron. Nice to be here. Awesome. So you co-wrote a recent research paper on the vulnerabilities of online learning platforms, some of which are the same platforms that we've come to use a lot during the pandemic in other ways, including Zoom, Webex, and BlueJeans. Are these platforms inherently insecure, or is it more about how they're managed and governed?
1: It's a great question, Aaron. Uh, and let me step back for a second to talk about uh, what what it means to provide a high quality educational product, right? We're using this um, as we're using a classroom. And so we're putting enormous demands on these systems to serve our needs. And these platforms were designed for a very different context. So when we had to examine how they were being used in the educational context, we had to examine how they're being used from an interdisciplinary perspective. And that's something that CITP specializes in. We had computer scientists, we had people who are specialists in governance, uh, we had lawyers like myself come in and evaluate how did this system work, how did it protect information, how did it preserve the qualities that we wanted to preserve. And so with that in mind, uh, I don't think these platforms are inherently insecure or should be inherently insecure. It is very much a question of how they're managed and governed and that we... As educational institutions ought to exercise our abilities and the government ought to exercise abilities to ensure that these platforms are serving our needs as the users of the product.
0: Was there much of a precedent for online classroom learning when the pandemic began? I mean, what, what was the industry standard? Why did so many educators feel like they were caught off guard when they were suddenly forced to go online last year?
1: There really, you know, there was online education before. Uh, mostly it was asynchronous, so people recorded videos. Uh, there were some platforms where people were communicating, but really the demand to switch overnight with the pandemic to an online format uh, using video conferencing technology that was mostly used uh, in a totally different situation. It was for companies who are dealing with remote work, um, that was the primary use of those technologies. And, and schools had sometimes experimented with it. Actually, Princeton um, had a, an account with Zoom before this, um, but it had it because it was actually, they got it because they, uh, I believe it was connected to the Alexander Bridge closure. And so uh, they knew that some people would be remote, administrators would be remote and so they needed a way to communicate. And so that's how they had acquired a Zoom license.
0: So when you say the Alexander Bridge closure, that's a local bridge that tied up traffic. So they knew that people would be uh, working from home more often.
1: That's right. And so uh, in that setting, uh, really, we had not ever thought of moving our entire educational infrastructure online, right? I mean, you step back and you think about the beautiful buildings at Princeton, the classrooms with all their history and, and all their... Uh, ways in which we've come to understand how to be respectful and uh, work in a classroom setting, now we're just saying, okay, you're all online now, and you're all going to look at these little boxes, and we're going to teach. And that's obviously an enormous challenge.
0: It seems like a lot of institutions, um, the assumption was, why would we want to go online? That's right.
1: Uh, What was special, and, and I Frankly, as, as a teacher myself, I, I do, I, I uh, pine for the, for the time when we can actually go back to being in person because there's really uh, no substitute for in-person learning and being with your students and learning together. But I think we were obviously forced to do it in the online context. And I think some people found some interesting ways to use the online tools to enhance classroom discussions or to um, make some of the things easier. And I can give a few examples if you like. Sure. Yeah, one one very good example for me I've found uh, is that I, I do a lot of one-on-one sessions with students where I talk to them about their projects, about where they are. And previously, they would have to wait, you know, at office hours, and they'd have to come in, and they wouldn't know, um, you know, how long and how many other people were there. And now you can just schedule a time. They can sit from wherever they are, and they're on a video screen, and we can have a discussion, and and then they go back to wherever they were, and I can go back to wherever I was. Uh, it's a lot easier to communicate that way. But when you're doing in-person learning and you're communicating in a classroom setting, um, it's very, very hard to replicate that in an online world.
0: When you're in a, in a classroom, there's a lot of information that you're not sharing, uh, personal data, you're not you know, taking out your uh, credit card or anything. But I mean, what sort of personal data or information about a student is more likely to be shared in a virtual setting than when you're in person?
1: So great question. The first of all, you know, you're you're making you have the ability to make a permanent recording of that interaction, uh, so you can preserve that information. So if I had a camera on every student's face in a classroom, uh, they would be. I doubt they'd be very happy. And as a teacher, I probably would not be very happy if every one of my classrooms was videotaped and evaluated later on. Um, there is also all your movements on the screen and how you interact with information. That these software platforms are designed to collect every last detail of your interactions, uh, how you're moving your mouse, uh, how large your windows are, you know, how many other things are going on at the same time on your screen, various details that we we leave to trust in the offline world, uh, and and we develop relationships where uh, we expect. The communication to go on uh, in a respectful manner, and so trying to do that in an online setting uh, gets to be quite hard. And then the other aspect, which which is again something which the online so that's so that's just the interaction between the student and the teacher uh, in a classroom. Uh, once you create an online world, there's a possibility for intruders um, and outsiders to to come in, and so. You had this phenomenon of Zoom bombing, which I'm sure people have have heard about where malicious outsiders would come in and disrupt classrooms. Uh, So those are different ways in which the online world does not poses quite a few set of new challenges as compared to the offline
0: world. You performed an analysis to see which third parties were receiving information on these platforms. Uh, So how did you do this and what did you find? So
1: we uh, you know we, we we used a few different technologies, uh, and so I should say that this is something that the computer scientists in in our group did. And what they were able to do was to see on an app what information was being sent to third parties, and we compared that to what the privacy policies required doing an analysis. Uh, we used this uh, system called contextual integrity to figure out you know where were the information flows, how were they taking place. And uh, we also set up a few computers uh, where we you know, replicated the software and were able to see, uh, examine the binary code and see what kind of security uh, vulnerabilities were there. But we, I think to step back for a second, we came in with the fundamental question, which is not a question that you often see asked of these platforms. You, we said, we have an educational context We understand the rules in an educational context. Are we applying that appropriately when we move to the online context? Usually the world works by saying, what's happening online? It's brand new, it's the new thing, it's resetting relationships. How do we just live with that world? And and we came in saying, no, 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 we, we have to look at what we've come to develop over a long period of time and ensure that those values are respected when we make that transition.
0: I mean, this is a good time to, to talk about the, you know, the conclusions, the findings, the... Uh... Yeah,
1: yeah, sure. Uh, you know, we we discovered a few few things, I think, that will make a big difference. So one is um, that it's really important for administrators when they go out to acquire the software, um, and in turn for the software companies to understand what do users expect? How do they expect their privacy to be treated? Uh, what are the norms around whether you put on re- video recording or not? What are the norms about uh, leaving your screen on? You know, how are students in different situations help educators understand that in certain settings, students may not be comfortable with the video on and, and how do you deal with that? Um, there are also specific practices the universities can do. For example, uh, there, there's a, a option within Zoom to have the data hosted locally on the university servers and not on the Zoom servers. Uh, So that was a big issue. And and then there are certain instances of non-compliance. I mean, Zoom, uh, for example, was uh, my my former office, New York Attorney General's office, uh, reached a settlement with them because they had promised that the information would be encrypted um, as it went over their systems. But in fact, those promises were not matched by their practices and so they they reached a settlement where they where they agreed to change their practices so you you see the need um, for regulators and universities to identify you know where where are these platforms not serving our needs and then figure out how do we develop appropriate penalties for for non compliance and finally you know we can learn from some of the security failures that we're talking about and make sure that okay you know one company's having this problem. let's make sure that all the other companies that are offering the service don't have the same set of problems.
0: how How secure are these platforms against attacks from outside adversaries? I mean, is the danger more outsiders taking advantage of of the vulnerabilities, or is it the platforms taking advantage uh, of their customers?
1: Uh, it's it's a, it's hard to quantify who's the bigger threat and and we have a, a threat model. Actually, we tried to develop a unique threat model in this paper uh, because really there are a few different potential adversaries. So there's the platform itself that can misuse the information, uh, maybe perhaps sell your location data to private parties. Uh, there is f- just the pure third-party adversaries, right? Somebody wants to Zoom bomb and disrupt the classroom. they are also internal uh Parties to either the educator or the student who may make surreptitious recordings or um, disrupt a classroom setting, who, you know, the internal threats, but they can use this technology to really do things in a way that um, they could not have done in the offline context.
0: Have there been known cases where hackers have, have taken students' personal information?
1: We, we haven't documented I believe I believe that is the case. I, I haven't we were not looking for that specifically. Uh, mm-hmm. We were looking for whether they were, whether they were vulnerabilities. Uh, mm-hmm. We were not looking for specific instances of, of hackers taking information.
0: Well let's take a little break here. You're listening to cookies, a podcast about technology, security and privacy. We're speaking with Mihir Sherrseiger a clinical lead at the Center for Information Technology Policy and a lecturer in computer science here at Princeton University. On next week's episode, we'll speak with me here's colleague at CITP, Kevin Lee, who wrote a fascinating study about how easy it is for an attacker to gain control of another person's cell phone. It's the 100th anniversary of Princeton School of Engineering and Applied Science. To celebrate, we're providing 100 facts about our past, our present, and our future, including some quiz questions to test your knowledge about the people, places, and discoveries who have made us who we are. Join the conversation by following us on Instagram at ePrinceton. That's the letter E, Princeton. But for now, let's go back to our conversation with Mihir Scherziger. So I know that during the pandemic, we've all had to improvise. But by and large, are educators using the institutional platforms, the one provided by their university, uh, or or are many of them using their personal platforms instead?
1: It's a great question. It's one uh, we actually surveyed the educators to understand what what it is, what were they doing, and why were they doing it? Because uh, one of the key aspects of our study was to not start with assumptions about what people were doing, but to really try to uncover data about how they were having these practices. And what we discovered is that educators were not using institutional platforms uh, in many cases. And that's because sometimes they didn't know that there was an institutional option available to them. Sometimes they thought that the institutional platform was just the same as the private platform and that they privately uh, had a free license to and so they didn't need to use the institutional platform. What they didn't understand in that situation, though, was that the institutional platform has various legal protections that the personal platform does not have. And uh, there are protections about how the platform may use the data, who it can share the data with, and what happens if the platform fails to respect uh, your preferences. And the institutional platform, institutional licenses are, are much better than the private licenses in that context.
0: So the, the professors could actually be putting their students' uh, personal information in danger by using uh, a platform that's not protected by some of these agreements with the institution.
1: That's correct. Uh, you know, there were requirements about encryption and, and uh, how the data is protected, uh, which would be quite a bit different from the institutional version versus the the free license version. And so... Uh, it is really important to, for professors to understand, you know, where the institutional versions are. And then you know, there's a bit of a challenge because, of course, the institutional versions, um, they may not be an institutional version of a particular kind of software you're trying to use. And uh, that's a whole other question about how you make sure that there is an institutional version of that software.
0: So in the paper, you discuss how large institutions are able to overlay their, their own rules onto platforms. So Zoom, for instance, provides a template for hospitals to add on their HIPAA obligations. So you in the paper, you looked at 50 different addenda to the privacy policies used by higher educational institutions. How much protection did these individual addenda provide?
1: They they provided additional protections. Uh, Again, it's hard to specifically quantify the amount, uh, but there were important obligations under the Federal Education Act uh, Records Act, FERPA. Um, Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's the Family Education Rights and Privacy Act, FERPA. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, And so the federal law provides specific protections for student data, and that includes, um, and really, that law. One of the things we look at that is is how that law was really built around this paper-based record concept of what's to protect. And so it was looked at particular kinds of information and information recipients. So it said, you know, if you had grade data, if you had data about uh, your location and certain other things. Name, address, telephone number, and so on, Uh, that could be shared under certain circumstances. But let's say, you know, data that goes into your student record about your grades or, you know, any findings about, um, you know, any administrative decisions about you or other records about your psychological status or something like that that an institution might keep, uh, those had to be afforded the highest level of protection. And uh, we're only allowed to be shared under certain circumstances, with certain people. And that is something that, uh, the zoom platforms or whatever online platforms would provide the protection to comply with the federal law, uh, in their, in their, uh, specific addendas that they
0: reached with large institutions. Hmm. So if a professor is using their own personal platform, to teach a class, it may not necessarily have that FERPA protection. Whereas if if they're using their institutional account, it would.
1: That's right. The institutional account would have specifically negotiated for the FERPA protection in a way that the private account may or may not have it, right? It it would be an analysis, but one of the uh, advantages of using the institutional account is that the institution has vetted the software to ensure that it is compliant with the laws that they're meant to be compliant with.
0: How often do universities go through the process of, of creating these addenda, especially with the pandemic sneaking up on us last year? W- were there universities that just didn't bother to uh, to do this?
1: We we didn't find that. I, I think there are. It, it's quite commonplace. And I think when a university goes out to license a product, um, they do ensure that it complies with the law. I mean, that's what they have a whole uh acquisition uh department and they make sure that that those the the standards are met it's when uh a private if a a professor goes out and gets their own software they may not appreciate how much work actually goes into evaluating software for use in Mm -hmm. an institutional context and and so uh that is something that uh is, is important for, for educators to understand uh, the importance of what the IT administrators do in vetting and ensuring that the software meets the standards for an educational setting.
0: So have, have these uh, has FERPA, have these other privacy laws themselves uh, kept up with the digital age? Uh, are there any burdens on the platforms for the transmission of protected information beyond what we've already discussed? So FERPA
1: and the other laws have not, unfortunately, kept up uh, with, with the digital age. And uh, there's some very nice papers that have been written, in fact, by somebody, uh, Elena Zaidi, who's a former fellow at CITP. Uh, she's now uh, a law professor. Uh, they, they've examined the real problem with FERPA is that it was built for this paper-based record system. And now we have this endless trail of digital exhaust, right? Where wherever you go, whatever you see, records about what you look and uh, who you're interacting with, and, and your chats, and uh, a variety of different ways in which information about your interactions are preserved for all time. Mm-hmm. And those issues about how do you deal with that data, who's responsible for protecting it, when do you delete it. How do you make use of that information? All of that FERPA and the States really haven't picked up uh, and haven't been able to regulate.
0: It sounds like you, you think maybe they need to uh, start uh, rethinking this.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think they need to, to think about how to regulate it. And We have some specific ideas uh, and, and this paper starts to, to make those points is that we have to start and, and this borrows from from another context which is contextual integrity and that is that we have to start looking at the information flows and we have to say uh, you know who's who's getting this information what are they going to do with it are they respecting our expectations for how the information will be treated and not so much on what's the information type and who the recipients so Uh, It it is a governance framework to look at the software use as a whole, how it fits into the educational context, rather than just looking at, okay, do you have this little bit of data about me? Can you share it? Do you have consent to share it or not? That's not going to be sufficient to address the challenges of, of the digital platforms.
0: You looked into 23 platforms and read their privacy policies. That must have been a lot of uh, heavy reading there. Um, there were some really interesting policies about with whom they could share data. Could you tell me a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Yeah, and, and the, the, my my uh, this was done by by three of, of my colleagues, uh, and the this mand- might be a
0: good opportunity to to, to uh, name them.
1: Sure. Oh, great. Um, my my colleagues uh, Madeline Sanfilippo, uh, Jan Schwarzschneider, and Shannon uh were the ones who really dug into the privacy policies and tried to understand and manually code them to see, okay, who's getting this information? How do they view them uh, and and what do they allow? And so they examined these policies and we saw that um, there were restrictions on who you could share third parties, uh, which third parties could get the information. And some
0: of uh, the platforms, who the platforms platform could share it with.
1: Correct, sorry. Yeah, who the platforms could share this information with. In the third party sharing context, um, we found that, for example, nine of the platforms uh, put the burden on the user to figure out who the third parties were who could access the information. Um, seven of the platforms uh, had provisions in their privacy policies that may have allowed data to be shared with advertisers. Um, and so, There were six of them allowed advertisers to share information with the platform. So they were, and and if you think about it, what what are advertisers doing in the educational context to start with uh, is a very big question. And of course, when you step back and you say, well, this is where uh, the privacy policies were designed for all kinds of contexts they were not specifically designed for the educational context, right? We're looking, when we're examining the privacy policies that we're talking about here, these are the general purpose privacy policies. These are not the specifically tailored to the institutional setting um, policy. And so we see there that if you were an educator who went out to get your private license to something, you may actually be allowing advertisers to collect information about your students and you advertise to share information about what they have on the students with the platform. So that's a very surprising fact. I think for an an educator, they thought if they didn't fully appreciate that they were not getting the kinds of protections they thought they were getting when they signed up for uh, one or the, the other of these
0: platforms. I mean, yeah, that is very surprising. If I'm using a free Zoom account to chat with a friend and an advertiser is harvesting my information, maybe I'm not that surprised. But if I'm in a university class setting and the same thing is happening, that, that is pretty surprising. Do do some of these addenda guard against that? That's right.
1: Yeah, the addenda guard against exactly that question. And so we I can't remember whether Zoom was one of these, but you know, for example, uh, if you looked at Google Hangouts. Uh, if you had a free account, you might be signing up for all that Google does to collect your information and share information. Whereas if you signed up for an institutional account, then there are additional protections about how Google can share that data.
0: Is it pretty universal when you have an institutional account that these platforms are not selling your information to advertisers?
1: It depends on what the institution demands of the account, but that is one of the Certainly under FERPA, they're not allowed to share information with advertisers. So mm. that without, without explicit permission and so on. So um, that is something that the institutional council would provide protection against.
0: So what are some examples of information that that's being shared on the platforms that students may not recognize as being harmful to share? I mean, you talk a little bit about location sharing. Uh, you know, if If somebody knows that I'm in Philadelphia, so what?
1: Right, uh, some of the location data um, might might be, the different kinds of location data that they're collecting. One is they may be collecting the location data to know which is the closest server to you so that it can send into the highest quality video feed. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's location sharing which is designed to deliver the service. It's quite a bit different if they were using that location data to sell to advertisers about where be, where your students are and how they're interacting with the platform. It would also be, I think to some students may come as a, you know, if uh, we're working remotely and, and if the educational institution knows where you're logging in from uh, and kept track of where you are when you were logging in, that might come as a surprise to students. That may not be something that they would be happy, uh, would necessarily want the institution to know their professor to know you know where where they are because one of the things that and we really haven't talked about it though so far it's is that of course the pandemic has put a lot of strain on families and people are in, in very vulnerable circumstances and many of the students have had to go back to homes where um, some of them have had to work while they're back at home they've had to find uh Places to work where they have, where they can be quiet, where they can participate in the educational setting. There's, you know, a, a huge distributional problem um, for how people from higher income backgrounds uh, can deal with the pandemic in ways that are very different from people from the lower income stratas, and uh, so those disparities get accentuated in uh, this transition to online learning. Mm. I mean, just for example, uh, the single biggest one uh, manifestation of that is the quality of broadband access, right? And the digital divide. And you see that if you're in a situation where it's hard for you to get uh, the, the Internet access of the quality that allows you to participate in the educational setting, that, that makes it very, very difficult.
0: Do you think there will continue to be a robust market for online education going forward or is this simply a phenomenon of the pandemic era Uh,
1: i think there is going to be a robust market for online educational tools Uh, it may not be video necessarily that's the main tool uh, but i think as i was talking about earlier some of the ways in which you communicate by one-on-one meetings or uh, some of the remote collaborations that have taken place and actually shannon uh, who's who's the first author on this paper, is in australia and and we were able to communicate work together on on these issues. Uh, I think that there are enormous opportunities for using these online platforms to create new hybrid models of learning. And I think there is going to be a, a very valued, you need for such programs and for platforms and for people to uh, find ways to communicate that are safe, secure, and respect the educational norms.
0: So, I mean, what do universities and regulators need to do beyond what we've already discussed to tighten the bolts uh, on security in this area?
1: I think that the biggest thing that they have to do, uh, and and it's difficult and it's complicated, but it's absolutely essential, is to uh, develop systems to collect feedback from their users, whether it's students, and one of the things in our paper we weren't able to do but would be important to do, is how do students view the use of these platforms? But we only got it at third hand through what educators thought their students cared about. But institutions, regulators, they need to understand how are these platforms being used? How does it affect the concerns of the educators? How does it affect the concerns of students? To find a process where they're collecting this information, where they're not speculating about how people might use these platforms, but they're actually collecting in real time, how are people using these platforms? And then to develop a mechanism to address gaps that come up, Mm -hmm. to to find a way to iterate quickly to close those gaps. Uh, And I think you know, separately, we've talked about how the federal laws and the state laws have to come up to speed with the new digital era.
0: All right. Well, thank you. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you.
1: Thank you, Aaron. It's great questions, and, and I've enjoyed being here.
0: Thank you. Well, we've been speaking with Mihir Shirsagar, a clinical lead at the Center for Information Technology Policy and a lecturer in computer science here at Princeton University. I want to thank Mihir, as well as our recording engineer, Dan Kearns. Cookies is a production of the Princeton University School of Engineering and Applied Science. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and other platforms. Show notes and an audio recording of this podcast are available at our website, engineering.princeton.edu. If you get a chance, please leave a review. It helps. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Princeton University. I'm Aaron Nathans, Digital Media Editor at Princeton Engineering. Watch your feed for another episode of Cookies soon. Peace.